0: Kia ora koutou Welcome back to another edition of the Department of Conversation. Uh, episode 60 today and my guest is Ian Smith. Ian Smith is a retired academic from uh, University of, of, of Otago. He is an archaeologist and he has found a bit of a niche in the marketplace, you might say, um, looking into early Pākehā settlements. Uh, when Māori were around. Apparently, not a lot of people have done this, and so Ian is sort of spearheading the the gap in New Zealand's history, uh, academically speaking, and I guess archaeological, archaeologically speaking as well. Uh, and the book he has just written is called, indeed... Pākehā settlements in a Māori world. So uh, Ian Smith has some really interesting thoughts to share about the history of New Zealand, I guess via Pākehā settlements and how they related in the early days, uh, well before the Treaty uh, of New Zealand. So here you go, Ian Smith. And we're live with Ian Smith. Ian Smith, hello, good afternoon and welcome. Good afternoon. I'm really looking forward to our chat today. The book is called uh, Pākehā Settlements in a Māori World. Oh, just why don't you bring, I was going to say, I was going to do this thing, but you could just bring up the, the put it into, the there it is there. <laughs> Much easier to look at it like that. And uh, you are an archaeologist. Yes. Uh, you are an honorary associate professor. Yes. Uh, which means you are, uh, as you were just saying, um, n- no longer actively teaching at Otago, but you are working in and around the university. Still doing that, yes. Now, first of all, to yourself and to those who are listening, I need to apologise. I've been frightfully sick for about nine days. I'm not sick anymore, but I have this thing called cough variant asthma. And it means that after I've got over my illness, sometimes I have a bit of a cough that comes back. So I've got all sorts of sucky things and puffy things. and So if I have a bit of a cough today, I apologise. Now that I've said that it won't happen, which is always embarrassing. Um, so yeah, if I'm a bit husky and I'm a bit coughy, it's not that I'm sick, it's just that this asthma thing kicks in when I get sick. So apologies to you and apologies to anyone watching or listening to this as well. So um, I am fascinated in your story. Pākehā sediments in Māori world, New Zealand, archaeology 1769 to 1860. I think many of us probably um, know about know about, get taught about, learn about, hear about sort of New Zealand post 1840, maybe even more so post 1900, you know that 1840 to 1900 is a bit of a, bit of a blank area for a lot of people mm-hmm. and um, some of the things over the last kind of 10 or 15 years that I've been working with and friends I've made and people who have taught me um, various things are echoed in this book quite heavily. Of what I've got to look through, and let me just say, I will hold it up now because this book is absolutely gorgeous. It is, I mean, let me do this. Hey, eh, jace the, the 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 number of pictures, the the way it's laid out, it is just. I've, as I said to you before, I've had three people come to my house in the last few days. Look at the look at the sitting on my table, going, "Oh, when you're done with that," and one person trying to actually take it, saying, "If you don't want that," and I'm like, "No, no, no, I want that." Um, Your background in archaeology. How do you get into being an archaeologist? That sounds like something that many of us growing up in the 80s would think of Indiana Jones and those sorts of people. How does one in the real world get into archaeology?
1: Well, for me, it happened uh, when I was at university. I had no, prior to that, I had no interest particularly in archaeology. Archaeology was something that happened in comics,
0: really. So you weren't the kind of kid who found a, an old rock and could see the seashell from a million years ago. well, that's interesting, That nothing at all.
1: No. Wow, that's I interesting. Had, no, when I was at university, uh, one of the subjects that I took was anthropology. And uh, the people who taught me in that were some of the most interesting teachers that I had, and that's wow. what, what attracted me. And initially I was... Um, mostly interested in social anthropology and sort of the study of modern uh, societies. Yep. But, uh, again, it was the people who were teaching archaeology that drew me into that. And then I discovered that I could actually go out and do it myself, you know, with them. And uh, so by the time I was a third-year student, I was starting to participate in archaeology and, um, and I had a research project to work
0: on. Yeah. So and so that was was based in New Zealand? Yeah. Because I guess a lot of I don't like something a lot of people think. Who knows? I wonder let's just talk about me. I sort of think about archaeologists and I think about, you know, Egypt and places that have got histories that are ten thousand years old or dinosaurs millions of years ago. I think about New Zealand and I kinda go, No, we've been around a while. But it's a it's a it's a, it's a good archaeological country, is it? It is.
1: I mean, ar- there's archaeology. Everywhere that people have been, there's archaeology because archaeology is the material remains of people in the past. And for me, it doesn't really matter whether it's 800 years of archaeology or 8,000 or yeah. 800,000. What's interesting is the doing of it because it's kind of like it's as close as you can get to being...
0: Doctor Who, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, I was just thinking then, if, if if the archaeology is more kind of 500, 600, 700 years, 700 years old, does that therefore mean an archaeological dig would be more plentiful than one that's 8,000 years old because things haven't deteriorated as much? To some extent, that's true. Um, it really depends
1: on the the kind of site, place it was in yeah. the beginning. I mean, if, if you have a place where people were camped for two days, you're not going to get much rubbish left behind, if you got somewhere where people lived for 200 years they're going to leave behind a lot of rubbish, now it doesn't matter whether that was 8 million years ago yeah. or or 800 years ago, that same difference is going to be there, but the other thing is true as well, is that things do decay over time Yeah. and the older they are, the more the more decay has taken place
0: Is this something that um, I'm, I'm reminded of Mike Dickerson today, Jace uh, who was like New Zealand's only Wikipedian and he was an expert in flightless birds and so you think of the moor and you'd see him light up when he was talking about, you know, talking about the moor and stuff. Uh, the New Zealand's archaeology, is that something that you're you're in love with? Have you done it other parts of the world? Have you gone and done a dig in, you know, Egypt or Australia or somewhere else?
1: I, I've worked on excavations in the Pacific, but all of the archaeology that I've sort of generated myself has been in New Zealand. Right. And... To me, that's what's really interesting, actually, because it's it's the archaeology of
0: us. Yeah, yeah, for sure.
1: And and if we don't do it, nobody else is going
0: to. Is archaeology something that is? Um, I'm trying to think of a, uh, a way to say is, is still as popular as ever. Uh, are there still as many students going through? Are there archaeologists being trained? And is it a dying art? Where did, how does it go? Um,
1: it's no, it's not a dying art. There's um, probably a steady. Um, number of people who are studying archaeology. You can do archaeology at Otago University and Auckland University um, in New Zealand. And um, both places produce a steady stream of graduates and there's a steady market for them out there too because the most of the work in archaeology is development driven mm. archaeology so every time there's a new building going up right. there's something being knocked down there has to be an archaeological assessment and sometimes that will mean there has to be an excavation and so most of the students that come out of the university go into that kind of work
0: so that would be a, that example of a um, new development a building being built that would be at the cost of the developer. Yes. They basically, part of their RMA or something is you have to do it to make sure this was not an archaeological significant site 500 years ago or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So so um, so that is, means that archaeology is mostly a commercial entity. It is mostly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, there's the archaeology that's carried out at universities is research driven, so yep. You know, when I was working at the university, I was one of the, the lucky people who get to um, make decisions about where I want to go and excavate and right. as long as I've got as long as I can get the research money to do it and I can get the um, approval of people who own the the land and people who are the descendants of the community that live there. Yep. if I can make all those things work, then I can go and do
0: it. Is there? Um, yeah. How, how does that happen? How does I understand the the develop the developer having to do it because he's got a an end game and a, and a necessity. How does it typically work that a site, you know, out of Aramwana or you know out, you know over in Brighton or something gets started on? Is it that someone comes across some one particular thing and you want to see if there's more, or how does that normally work? Uh, it happens in a number of different ways.
1: I mean, there's a lot of sites that uh, archaeologists already know of. We've had a, a site recording scheme going in New Zealand for more than 50 years and there's like something like 80,000 sites recorded wow. on it and constantly more being recorded all the time. Um, but, uh, well, I mean, with most development-driven archaeology, um, a developer, part of what they do in their resource management consenting process as mm-hmm. though they'll they'll, um, they'll get an archaeologist to have a do a quick assessment is there anything here is there anything that needs to be done right um, in terms of research work when I've been uh, sort of planning excavations um, I'm starting with an idea I want to find out about what life was like on right shore whaling stations or whatever so where are those sites? I'd see what research has been done on that, <laughs> and then I evaluate those sites. Which ones are going to be a good prospect for giving me the kind of evidence I want to recover? And is, is that
0: kind of is that part of the uh, the, the the start of your book? Wanting, that, to, wanting to know how Pakeha lived, sort of pre-treaty, is that is that yeah, part of it? That was a big part of it. I mean,
1: I I kind of, in a lot of ways, I sort of stumbled into doing that. Um, I mean, I like most archaeologists of my age. When I started um, doing archaeology in New Zealand, it was Maori archaeology. Nobody did the archaeology of Pākehā at that right. time um, because
0: that was historians' business. Um, but from… Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So historians looked at the Pākehā history. Yeah. Um, Archaeologists looked at Maori history. yeah. But what because the pakya history was actually actually my my great grandfather could have told me stories about that so it's almost second or third hand.
1: Yeah, you had you had you know the written accounts and you had the um, the family histories passed down and so on and I guess you know for a lot of people they would think well it's only a hundred years ago that's not very long you yeah. know or, or whatever but uh, from about the mid nineteen seventies. Um, when they first, when um, there was the first legislation to protect archaeological sites, it was uh, any site that's a um, hundred years old or older. Yeah. So that included Pākehā sites as well as Maori sites. So archaeologists started to get involved in looking at
0: uh, parkia archaeology as well. So is this something? So, so it's a general study now. You're not just like leading the way in this. Other other archaeologists are doing this.
1: Other archaeologists are doing it. I've certainly um, been the probably the main person who's forged the way in yep. what we call historical archaeology in New Zealand. The archaeology of the period for which we've also got written history. Um, but you know, it's done all over the world, and increasingly, it's done in New Zealand. Um, but this is the first time anyone's written a book about
0: it. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, out of the out of the book and out of the research, how, how long did this take? Because this is a I, I know people who have done done you know uh, l- large factual books before that have taken them several years to write. This looks like a huge amount of research. What what is this? What does this signify? How much of your life does this little thing signify?
1: Well, in some ways, it's forty years of work. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, since I started doing archaeology, I guess, four to five <coughs> years. Um, but in terms of the actual writing of the book, there's about probably uh, what, four years wow. involved in that. Um, but in terms of seriously working on the, um, the projects that underlie what's mm-hmm. in the book, I guess there's about 15 years' work there. Wow.
0: And this will become, you know... Part of every archaeological course in New Zealand, I would think this book. I I would hope so. <laughs> you would think it would be if, if you if if this is the so this is the leading bible for Pākehā settlements in Maori world for this ninety year period. It is. It's yeah. the only book. The only book. Mm-hmm. So are there any other books about Pākehā, uh, Pākehā? I nearly called it parkiology. That's sort of putting them together. Pākehā. Archeology, span yeah, got it. Are there any are there actually any other uh, written resources for it? There's there's a couple of other books which are sort of
1: um, chapters written by different authors, yeah. including myself, yeah. that um, that look at just little aspects um, of historical archaeology in New Zealand. Um, there's a couple of books that have been written about um, sites, say, from the New Zealand Wars, mm-hmm. um, and uh, describing the archaeological sites as sort of field monuments that you can go and visit. Yep. Um, but this is the only book that um, really tries to take the results of archaeology of part of that period and and
0: build it into a, a sort of a big coherent story. And, and, and uh, you know, other than obviously it's part of your passion, did you see, like, a necessity for this resource to be out there? Did you see... Like a gap in the marketplace, you know, so that this is going to sell well. What what was the, what was the main driving thing to have this written down for, I guess, in perpetuity?
1: Well, I definitely a gap. I guess a gap in the market. Um, although, I mean, that's I guess more for my publisher than for me. <laughs> um, but for me, there was certainly, you know, I, I guess from the general sort of. Um, Ordinary Pakeha perception of our own history was, you know, we had Captain Cook, yeah, and then there was the Treaty, and then there were some wars, and then it's sort of World War One, and there's an awful lot got kind of skipped over in that, and um, and when we think, I mean, so much of what happens in New Zealand today is framed by the way in which Maori and Pakeha interact with each other and towards each other. And what I could see in studying the early years of Maori and Pākehā encounter with each other is that, that was, the way things worked then is quite different from the way it worked later in the 19th century um, through the 20th century and the way it is now. So I thought it was really important for New Zealanders to um, be reminded
0: of the way in which things started. I worked as a talkback host for 10 years on Newstalk ZB. And of course um, an oft-repeated cry of a talkback caller would be, ah, we need to be one people, we need to be one people, you know, stop this division. And what I read in your book, and my understanding from other learned people in this area, is that when Pākehā turned up, we, we sort of were one people because they lived alongside Māori, and sort of adopted the Māori way of doing things. And um, I remember being told a story um, from Waitamata Harbour in Auckland that Māori basically had to look after Pākehā when they first turned up because, you know, the new settlers didn't understand how to catch the local fish. Um, so Māori would go out and do that and bring them back and support them. And then that turned into a commercial venture. And then, of course, when there was enough Pakeha to make make the power move, they wouldn't allow Māori to come all the way into the docks. They'd have to offload the fish onto a boat, which was a pakia boat, halfway up in the harbour, and then those guys got to come in and sell it. And all these weird things, and it kind of felt like, and, and sorry to A, be crass, B, to oversimplify things, but it sounds like that basically, you know, Europeans turned up, went Shangri-La, Let's live with these people. Let's work alongside them. Let's learn from them. And then they got to a point where there was enough of enough white people that they basically went, ah, fuck it. We'll just do it our way from now on. You savages can go back to your own way.
1: I don't think it was necessarily quite as cynical as okay. that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. Um, but for some people, it probably was. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were, there were certainly some people who um, quite deliberately sort of were as Maori as they needed to be when mm-hmm. it counted, but were perfectly happy to change when the political um, movement swinged and it swung. Well, like and when the it power up- balance yeah. came. Yeah. It was so yeah. basically
0: when Pākehā outnumbered Māori, yeah. things changed. Yes. And the, the thing that
1: defines the time period that is looked at in my book is that's the time period when Pākehā were the minority. Mm-hmm. You know, that's... Um, I mean, in some ways it's quite remarkable that it was only 90 years between
0: Captain Cook, the first Pākehā, putting footsteps on the land. And that was definitely a cook. So Tasman didn't make it to the shore at all? No, nobody, oh, okay. nobody,
1: nobody got ashore with um, in Tasman's encounter. Um, yeah, but only, only 90 years after that, that um, Pākehā outnumbered Māori. Um, so that's an incredibly rapid.
0: Yeah. So so Maori were here for six hundred, seven hundred years by themselves. Mhm. Um, Pakeha turned up, and within ninety years, were the dominant yeah, group. They
1: outnumbered them, and um, and that's just because of the um, the incredible rate of immigration, um, basically. And uh, there was also a very high um, what's called hyper reproduction. The Pākehā families. Um, (laughs) So they were going for it, in other words. Uh, Yeah, Uh, their their families were bigger and healthier than those in Britain.
0: All right, I've got a really stupid question for you. First time I've ever thought of this question, but I'm really interested by it. Is there a record for the first Pākehā born in New Zealand, like the original Pākehā New Zealander? Like a pregnant lady came across on the ship, baby. Do you know? Yep. There is. Yep. 1814, Um, when
1: the Um, December 1814, when the first missionaries were arriving at the Hohi Mission Station in Mm -hmm. the Bay of Islands, Hannah King, the wife of one of the um, missionaries, was heavily pregnant. Right. And she, in order to get from the ship to shore, um, she had to be hoisted in a chair. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, And and anyway, a a few weeks later, um, their child was born. Uh, So that was the first... Pākehā born yeah. in New Zealand.
0: That sounds so, like the way you say that it sounds like it's knowledge everyone should know <laughs> but, I, but yeah. I didn't I didn't know that.
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, I having worked in this area for a long time um, you know working in different places around the country you come across local histories that will say, you know, this is the first white woman born in New Zealand. There's a there's about at least half a dozen different claims. Right. And they they are all made in good faith, but in ignorance of what's happened elsewhere in yeah, the country. Sure. And so it's only by putting together things from
0: all over the place that you can actually figure out these firsts. So Pacquiao turned up. They basically, um, I'm, I'm simplifying it over paraphrasing, and
2: you can just expand on this. Just sort of jump in, uh, uh, unless I'm getting my names confused, uh, they, 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 they were married by Samuel Marsden. They were. So there you go. Is Because that, that's Marsden, Marsden from Marsden College we are talking about a while back. Yeah. yeah. So there you go, this little small world. Well, I suppose there wasn't that many people, so just my, my my thing here says there, Samuel Marsden was the people who married who married the husband and wife who gave birth to the first Pākehā person in New Zealand.
0: There you yeah. go. And then Māori the world over gnashed their teeth even more. <laughs> so Pākehā turned up, Europeans turned up. They set up alongside, There's a I should have marked it, there's a delightful picture in here of... Um, Maori fishing off the beach, and a little white tent in the distance where Pakeha are kind of setting up camp, or literally, um, to live for a while, sort of thing. And you, and and the picture basically says, you know, shows them living literally side by side. W- they lived like that until um, the population sort of switched, or did once there was enough Pakeha turned up that they start to kind of form towns and settlements outside of Maori, or how did that work? Um, the Initial settlements were mostly sort of quite, if
1: you like, specialised, single-focus kind of places, like they were sealing camps mm-hmm. or they were whaling stations or timber stations, and most of those involved both Māori and Pākehā working together. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that's just simply the way they worked. It, it's, it was necessary for the Pākehā um, to work with Maori to get the food, Maori um, were a big part of the labour um, in these operations and so on. And also, they the Pākehā had to have um, use rights for these resources. If they didn't, if they didn't um, negotiate use rights, they would um,
0: generally get run out of
1: town. So negotiate country. with
0: Maori. Yeah. So, for example, if they were going whaling, would they still do that? Maori considered the, the sea. Obviously, we know about yep. foreshore and seabed. They considered the sea to be theirs. They'd have to get rights to. Go ahead. Yeah. whales. There would, there would be negotiations.
1: Very often, there would be an arranged marriage between the um, head of the station, whaling station, and um, daughter of a local chief, right. um, which sort of bound the two communities together um,
0: and sort of reinforced their dependence on each other. And in that situation, did did uh, did those early people speak Maori? Did the Maori learn English? Or do they use lots of hand signals? <laughs>
1: A lot of both, I think.
0: Okay. <clears throat> I mean,
1: I, I think that, uh, and I think you can see it on both sides. There were there were people who were, um, sort of really good at the at at working the cross cultural encounter mm-hmm. and making it work. Um, you know, some, there were some uh, Maori who were um, who could see the opportunities um, to, if you like, enhance their own mana and power yep. through controlling access to Pākehā things. Um, so, um, you know, they would utilise that situation to their own advantage. Yeah. And equally, there were Pākehā who were, you know, they were interested in the commercial opportunities and, and so on.
0: So even though we hear stories about, oh, you know, they bought mm-hmm. this land for three blankets and a bunch of beads, it sounds like what you're saying is that some Māori were pretty business savvy. And they were like, I this is mine or this is ours. If you want access, we need to negotiate. However, that would have worked two hundred years ago.
1: Yeah, it did, and it worked. I mean, there were there were good deals and there were bad deals. Yes, yeah. um, and it's very difficult to sort of characterise them all in a in a single way. But but by and large, you know, these were negotiated outcomes. There were certainly, uh, I mean, particularly later on, um, once. Um, after the treaty, mm-hmm. in fact, um, where you've got um, this sudden influx of new settlers coming, the need to provide land for them. Um, this is where you started to get a lot of the really shonky deals where right. particularly the New Zealand company, you know, they were so desperate to get the land to have a town to put these new settlers in who mm-hmm. were on a ship already coming that they... Would um, quite knowingly negotiate with some people who they knew didn't really have the rights to sell <coughs> what they were trying to buy. Mm-hmm. I mean that, that's what happened in the case of Wellington and, for example, and Whanganui as well. Um, but to get back to one of your earlier questions, the thing that really changed was when Pakeha started living in towns, right? Because the towns. Um, sort of concentrated more and more Pākehā into them, and they became a place Separated where… Separated them from Māori yeah, well, yeah, they sort of became insulated from right. the Māori world. Even though those early towns, were, they were still dependent on Māori for food. Most mm-hmm. of the food was being um, produced by Māori, um, both, you know, like, um, not just fish and so on. Māori um, were growing most of the grain that was um, feeding Auckland, for example. Um, and indeed a lot of Australian cities in the 1850s. Wow. Um, yeah, so um, they were economically dependent, but they started to become sort of culturally more independent of Maori. And and it was part of that sort of um, swinging of the pendulum when the um, the Pākehā population got big enough that it was possible for them to, um, first of all, um, ignore Maori demands mm-hmm. and then to exert their own um, hegemony, if you like, yeah. and and essentially invade Maori territory, steal their land, confiscate it and so on, and all of those things that happened in the 1860s and 70s
0: with uh, brutal military force. Do you, I'm interested, um, we often talk about how New Zealand did it differently with the treaty, and that doesn't mean that obviously we've got it right today, or that it was perfect then. But compared to places like you know Australia and, and the US, where basically they just aim to wipe out the natives and come and take the land, I'm interested. Somewhere like the US, when the early settlers turned up there, do you have any knowledge of was it a similar situation? In other words, did the early settlers, the Pilgrims as they call them, work alongside the Native Americans? And then it turned into a bloodbath, or the settlers that came to New Zealand were they different from other um, colonies? Like was it a different way of doing things on the first few days? I think one of the things that made New Zealand different <coughs>
1: is when it happened. Um, New Zealand <coughs> New Zealand was very sort of late in the um, historical sequence of right, colonization yeah. events by uh, by Europeans. Um, Euro-Americans, um, so I guess that that meant that a lot of the um, things that had been tried before and had found been found to fail mm-hmm. um, were um, no longer being pursued, and I guess that's um, that's one of the reasons that you know, a, a treaty was um, sort of at the forefront of the way in which it was done. In New Zealand. That's how
0: I've always understood it as well, almost like settlers or uh, colonists went, we've done this all sorts of other terrible ways, let's try a new way of doing it. Um, Yeah, it wasn't exactly new. I
1: mean, mean, we talk about North America almost as if it was a single event of Mm. colonisation. In fact, you've got multiple... um, colonizations that happened over a period of several hundred years in different parts of North America. Yeah, true. Um, and and in some of those, you've got treaties which are actually quite similar to um, to those in New Zealand, um, and and you know some of them um, adhered to by people on both sides. And in most cases, not. Um, <coughs> yeah, so. So I think I think that timing is is plays a big part in that,
0: right? Yeah, my understanding is there are some treaties, especially on the border of Canada and America, which are quite similar to Treaty of Waitangi. Um, yeah, it's interesting, maybe because purely because of our size, I, it, it's more of a nationwide, you know, one mm-hmm. hit, let's get into it sort of thing. Yeah, I think another thing that's different, and and
1: it's I think helps to explain differences between New Zealand and Australia, where you know it's. Um, their colonisation is pretty similar in terms of time. Right. Um, I mean, the difference is that in Australia it starts with convict uh, settlements. Um, But I think one of the things that is really different is in the New Zealand case, the Maori response to these new people um, was quite different from the Aboriginal response in Australia in that... um, I think that that Maori showed much more inclination to engage in trade, okay. and and to be a sort of an active participant in, um, in changing, <coughs> the world around them, um, much more than was the case for, um, in most parts of of Australia, and so, um, and I think that that has had a long term impact on the on the nature of race relations in the two countries.
0: Yeah. Do you, mm. I'm thinking about those early Australian settlers, convicts, and those who looked after the convicts, basically. Whereas people moving here, free men and women, I guess. Um, I wonder how in Australia Aborigines would have interacted with those people. I mean, when they got to Australia, was their sentence go to Australia, or was their sentence go to Australia in due time? Uh, it was go to Australia
1: and do time.
0: So the Aborigines probably wouldn't have had access to those settlers if they were doing time, quote-unquote.
1: Um, well, yes and no. I mean, part, part of doing time... Doing time often meant that um, you were assigned to work as a farm labourer for right. somebody or whatever. So you weren't necessarily incarcerated.
0: I mean, right. Simply being in Australia was incarceration. It <laughs> still is, isn't it? Um whereas but the people I mean, I know it's a bit of a joke and a bit of a slag like I just did then. But you know, the people who came to Australia were convicts, the people that came to New Zealand were number eight Y, two by four kind of were what's the word? Explorers. Well, that was that was the difference. And so maybe that was part of the reason that in New Zealand there was a, a change of things. They were like we're we're on an adventure, you know, we we want to explore, we wanna go and make the best of what's going on, we want to interact with these people, whereas people in Australia didn't want to be there, so why would that try?
1: Um,
0: I don't know, there might be a certain amount of that, but there was
1: an incredible amount of movement of people backwards and forwards across the Tasman, Mm -hmm. particularly in this early period. I mean, just about all of the the men who came to New Zealand um, in sealing gangs um, were signed on in either Sydney or Hobart. Um, and most of them were um, ex-convicts. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I, I, that kind of starts to um, <coughs> undo that kind of difference that you've been trying to yeah. suggest there. Maybe I'm just talking out my head. Yeah. It's just
0: I'm just I'm thinking it through. I because I, I, I love the feel. Ugh. Shall I say the intention? Again, I don't want to imply that we've got it right. But the intention of working together, especially at the start, this idea that we'd go into we being, you know, I guess white people, early settlers, the, the early settlers would come into New Zealand and go, um, l- let's work alongside this group of people who know this place. It feels, that feels completely contrary to how we hear about colonisation. You know, the English wanted to bring England, that's why some idiot bought hedgehogs to New Zealand because they wanted to see freaking hedgehogs in their backyard. Who cares about that today? You know, it, it feels contrary to how I've learned about colonisation. And it also seems to be if someone was to colonise, quote unquote, a country today, or let's speak into the future, a planet, that, that would be the way you'd want to do it. Go in and work alongside and learn from rather than going in and trying to take you know, a little bit of Dunedin into wherever else.
2: Um, well Although, I, if you're going to take something, you should take Dunedin. Dunedin would be the thing to take. Are we going to teach the Martians to <clears throat> binge drink? Are we? Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep.
0: And we'll take it's, our it's, we'll we'll it's, take our cough variant asthma over there with them and wipe them all out. Is
2: that right? <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: so what I'm saying is, I'm it's a bit. am a bit sad. It's because that sounds like a great way to start. It was, and, and then I we like cocked the, it up think, it, along the way. I think. I think that. Um,
1: one of the things we have to acknowledge is that it's not just about how those colonists who came to New Zealand were thinking. Yeah. It's, they, they could only do what Maori let them do. Yeah, it was about how Maori responded. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, everyone, <coughs> every Pākehā who was in New Zealand up to 1840, probably up to 1850, was here at the goodwill of Maori. They yeah. could have been run into the sea at any time had Maori chosen to do that, yeah. do that. Um, so it, you know they did what they were allowed to do
0: and that just again it, it leads you to um, when I say leads you I mean lead one, leads it one, leads one to think about how I'm thinking about you know the stories from the 1950s about Māori being hit in schools for speaking their language and you know, having to, to fight to get, you know, the Raglan golf course back, although it was something that they lent to the government during wartime and then the government never gave back. It just makes all of those things feel extra slighted, that's like an extra slap in the face. Whereas on day one, if Māori had gone ah, no, then it would have been no. Then this place would be a Pacific island if they had have done that.
1: Indeed. Well, you know, and they started so well. I mean, the first school in New Zealand, which was at the Hohe Mission Station, uh, opened in 1816 I think
2: mm.
1: it taught Maori children te reo they weren't teaching them English they were teaching them te reo and you know it's only much later that um, that the Maori being you know stopped from learning their own language in schools
0: came along that's it. So is there a point is there something that happened at some stage that was the tipping point or was it more of a slow creep?
1: I think it's a, it was a Process rather than a, than an event, yeah. Um, and I think that the biggest part of that process is is just a population growth. It's a swamping. You know, Maori were swamped right. by this. And, I mean, not only Maori, the the Pakeha who were here yeah. in that first sort of generation, yeah, who were living alongside and with Maori, often married to Maori, often with you know mixed race families. Yeah, I mean, when this Enormous, you know, hundreds of thousands of people out of um, London and Edinburgh and so on started swarming into New Zealand. Those people were feeling isolated, too. Yeah, they they were being um, sort of pushed aside by this new, um, you know, in the in the there's a period of about (coughs) 15 or so years from. in the 1860s and 1870s, where there were more people born outside of New Zealand in the New Zealand population than people born inside New Zealand. Right. That's how many there were. So many migrants wow. coming in.
0: Yeah. i just yeah. It, it's um thinking. I mean, I'm a visual person, and I'm thinking about that person who was over here in, you know, let's say 1790, living alongside Maori, and then you know. All the I know it wasn't a ten-pound pond back then, but the equivalent of turned up. That would be because those would have been whatever they called themselves, but certainly sort of the original New Zealanders, as we would deem New Zealand, not the original mm. inhabitants, but you know, yeah. that country. Having all these foreigners, although they might have come from their hometown, they might just have been away from their hometown for 30 years. But now the stranger turns up with their strange ways, and they might have been their neighbour 30 years ago. Indeed, yeah. gosh. Doing this uh, particular book, The Pākehā Settlements in a Māori World, anything uh, you found that particularly surprised you? Like anything that you were shocked by or pleasantly surprised by or anything that comes to mind? There are lots
1: of um, wonderfully interesting finds. There always are when you're digging in the ground. Um, I don't know if there's anything that super surprised me because I kind of... um, had a sort of feel for what was... And you've been doing this for a lifetime. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. But, um, I mean, <coughs> some of the things that we found were really special. Like what? Things. Um, for example, at the Hohe Mission Station, um, when we when we started excavating there, we knew you know, that this had been the first Pākehā, permanent Pākehā settlement in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. We knew that... There'd been a school there. We didn't know where any of these things were on the ground. And I just looked around and decided that this, this looked like the best place to start digging.
0: Like if I was going to build a school, I would build it here. Well, yeah.
1: <laughs> and, um, and when we, you know, the first day we are digging, turn back the turf, there's some pieces of slate and some slate pencils. Wow, know. this is the stuff from the first school in New Zealand. Yeah, and then some toys, little toys that that have been used as basically as bribes to bribe the Maori children to learn their lessons, you know, yeah. things like um, uh, little glass beads. Um, there's a, a little toy brass cannon about two inches long. Wow. Um, uh, a mouth harp. Um, things like that, um, that, you know, at at one level they said, they told us, okay, we know we've got the school now because we've got all these things from the school. But also these things are so personal, you know. I mean, these are things that, that, that Maori children, who were the first children to ever attend a mission school in New Zealand, were using. And some of the slate pencils have got little marks. They've been sort of had little crosses scratched on them so someone's marking it that that's mine you know
0: wow yeah I remember and I've told this story before I don't know in what capacity but um, you get those moments I'm sure you must that sounds like a moment where you kind of go holy mackerel this was a kid who actually this is their handwriting Um, one of those grand designs type programs where they were converting old houses and you know getting hundred year old houses and putting new kitchens into that kind of jazz and this place was had Uh, a house that was, part of it was built in the 1400s and they pulled the equivalent of jib off and they were going to do this and they found a clay wall and in that clay wall there was handprints from actually making the wall and those handprints were, you know, 700 years old from the person who lived there and made it and I was just like, and then obviously because it was a a flash thing, they exposed it and they left exposed but I just thought, oh, that would just, that would stop my heart to see something like that. And it must be on a shorter time frame level, the similar sort of thing where you see this, this Maori kid has put his X in there and this is mine. And that gives it ownership that belonged to someone. That's like, that'd be like finding someone's signature on something from a European settlement. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 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 Um, this book, this beautiful, beautiful book, is this available to the public? And if it is, where do they get it from? It's in all good bookshops. Um, and, uh, there we go, Mighty Ape, 60 bucks. Yep. Great great stocking stuffer, is that what you're saying? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I was going to ask you as well, This is. I'm not going to be able to do this, I'm sure we do not zoom in and get it, but if I do this, Jace, can you see the blue lines there at all? Does that work?
2: It, it is working, yes. You can see the blue lines, yep, yeah, so you can talk to it.
0: So we are in Dunedin. Yeah. That is a, a, a picture of the octagon which is, I don't know, 300, 400 metres from the current water edge. And you can see the reclaimed land goes up to the outer octagon, a place for people who don't know Dunedin called Moray Place. And I'm amazed, and you've got other pictures in here from other settlements as well. I think Wellington's in here and some other pictures. Um, How much land was reclaimed? Um, How does that work from an archaeological point of view? I mean, reclaimed land is basically new land, Is that a good archaeological site? Is it more important just to acknowledge where the shoreline was? What's the purpose of bringing out this is where the shoreline was and this is where it is now? Well, it it tells us two things. Um, Obviously, the only
1: places that people can have lived on before reclamation are, um, you know, on the 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 ground that hasn't been reclaimed. Yep. Um, And so, if we're uh, going to try and find. Those early sites, then we're not going to look out where the reclamation is, but the reclamation R- itself right. is interesting because um, the way in which all of that uh, all of that land was
0: reclaimed yep. was by dumping rubbish into it. Yeah, I was just going to say, speaking to this, so this, Jason, if you can embed this, the actual the imagery we've got in here, the blue, if people can see this, if you can't see this, go to YouTube and have a look at the video. Um, the blue highlight the original shoreline. Actually, on your image goes up higher, doesn't it? Goes up there yeah. towards the octagon. So obviously, there's a. That's right. Is there a conjecture over that then, or is, is no? This, no. It's a, bit, a bit off. Well, the,
1: that that yeah, that's only a small part. He's yeah, there. yeah. Um, there's a very good. There was a very good uh, map drawn by Charles Kettle in 1846 or 7 when he originally surveyed. Uh, the site of Dunedin, yep, and that shows the shore of this great big lagoon that comes in, you know, um, into uh, right where <clears throat> Countdown Supermarket is right. and the, the police station yeah, yeah, yeah. is <laughs> sitting on top of this lagoon. And indeed, you know, where they're uh, putting the new hospital.
0: One So of the, we're is now yeah, on the One Ways.
1: Um, part of that is a uh, reclaimed land as well, which just means they're going to have to have deeper foundations and...
0: And so on. So the two things are, as you said, you don't go look in there because it's new land, and also they fill it with rubbish. Yeah, but which is tells us about
1: uh, the archaeology of later times. Oh, I mean, because you can look at the rubbish. Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah. for example, when when they developed the Chinese garden, mm-hmm. um, they, um, they discovered that when that part had been filled – you can see individual cartloads of rubbish that have been tipped in wow. there, and there's one. There was one cartload that was all offcuts from uh, a shoe or bootmaker, bits of offcuts from you know partly made boots and shoes and stuff like that, just in a big pile, and you know, and then a whole lot of uh, clay and other stuff was mm-hmm. dumped in there, and there were loads of stuff from. Um,
0: um, soft drink manufacturers, you know, broken bottles and stuff like that. So actually that means Reclaimed Land is an archaeological site, but of more recent times? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Never thought about that. Yeah. And um, so, you know, there's been
1: archaeology done on, on those kind of sites in, in Dunedin and Wellington and in Auckland.
0: Yeah. 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 Um, it's a fantastic book. I've loved it. I, I, I've, I've read a lot of it. There is a lot of information in here. This is one of the things when you're sick in bed for nine days. This was my constant companion. Um, again, people can find it in every good bookstore. Uh, Pākehā settlements in a Māori world, New Zealand archaeology, 1769 to 1860. Um, is there anything you want to leave us with? I'm just kind of thinking, my head's still on this point. I'm not, I'm not trying to go on here about how it's, I've, I feel a bit sad about how we started and where we're at today and we and this is maybe more of a almost more of a sociological conversation now but we how do we get there how do we go back to this you know working alongside and not being quite so divided and although we are better than most countries i would say that it still feels like there's always some work to do and we we what we could have been versus what we are sort of thing well i think i think
1: that we're better than we have been yep um, which is uh, an improvement and i think that the more we n- um, look at and understand our past and accept our past for what it is yep. then the more we can bring that into how we um, operate in the present so you know there's 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 value in
0: looking at the past to try and help us to negotiate the present and there's that idea that if you don't acknowledge and address the past you're doomed to repeat it as well Yes. So that's an important thing to perhaps look into. Uh, Ian Smith, uh, Pākehā Settlements in a Māori world. As I said, great stocking stuffer. As I said, for people who are thinking, I mean, you know, this is not necessarily a Christmas present. I mean, it's an any time by, but I've had three people, three visitors in the last five days saw this on my table. All three of them wanted to read it next. So I would say that this would be an absolute slam dunk for anyone looking for an impressive and it's it's in New Zealand like I think about coffee coffee table books and books you can flick through and books you can read and it's just so much New Zealand there's so many good pictures and so many good yarns in there and stories and you know l- teachings and learnings and stuff I think that it's a it's a fabulous, when I saw you popping up on an events calendar here in Dunedin I knew I wanted to talk to you straight away. So thank you Ian Smith for coming in and as I said again people, Pākehā Settlements in a Māori world, um, what do you reckon Jason? everyone should get one for Christmas I reckon.
2: Yeah. yeah for those for those hard to buy for um, people that uh, you know have a coffee table it's, 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 it's I'd say you know it's more than a, a coffee table book of lovely pictures but you know if you' got if you're sitting at the coffee table and your phone dies the phone battery dies and you want to read something other than Facebook I'm thinking <laughs> of a, I'm
0: thinking of a particularly um, wise 60-ish person that I know guy he's an RNZ listener he's that kind of person he would just He'll buy this in a heartbeat. So I think that there's a market for this and I hope you do really well with it. It's an amazing book and thank you for coming in. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, alrighty then. Uh, that was Ian Smith, the book again Pākehā Settlements in a Māori World. Uh, so, next week we have got for you uh, one of New Zealand's youngest mayors. He's also a Green Party member. Uh, he is Aaron Hawkins. He is the, uh, the mayor of Dunedin, but we wanted to talk to him because his story is a whole lot bigger than just local body politics. He's been a broadcaster, uh, he's been a student, obviously, uh, he has been a, a politician for a little while, and he's fought off some particularly difficult And persistent competitors in the realms of politics to become the mayor of Dunedin. Uh, A very interesting conversation coming up for you next week, uh, Tuesday. If you happen to be listening to this and want to tune in live, go to the Facebook page to find out more information, or you can head to www.thedoc.nz, which is a good place to go to get all your information about the Department of Conversation. Uh, Still trying to juggle a couple of other conversations potentially before Christmas, but to kick off next week we will be speaking to Aaron Hawkins as we continue to make sweet, sweet love in your ear holes since 2018. We'll catch you next week. Hooroo!